Parker. This is Warming Signs, a podcast with the sound minds of science. It's not just happening at the polls, right? It's um, it's 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 here. <laughs> it's at the doorstep. That was author Rick Van Noy. He bravely went where some wouldn't dare, the South, to talk about climate change. Sudden Spring is Rick Van Noy's attempt to understand climate adaptation in the South. I spoke with him about why some people don't want to see the changes in front of them and how talking to people face to face rather than with a computer between you is a totally different experience. Hey, Rick. Thanks for joining us. I have to ask, why the South? South is going to face a lot of challenges. I mean, there were certain things that I read that suggested that the South could be hit hardest by climate change because the South is already hot. In some cases, it's also because the South has, you know, poor communities and those could could bear a, a big brunt of this. So that was another reason. And I always think just personally, I had some interest in exploring some of these places that are seeing the, the effects of climate change. So I'm not going to say you use this as a as a way to get a little vacation, but you did visit some beautiful <laughs> spots, some of my favorite spots in the country. Yeah. yeah. So oh, sure. your title your title of your book is is Sudden Spring, which obviously reminds me of Silent Spring. That was right. the Rachel Carson book in the '60s, and you mention it in your book. That one was about pesticides. Was that the inspiration for the title? Yeah, I was drawn on um, on that title. The last book I did was called A Natural Sense of Wonder, and that was kind of inspired by an essay of hers called Help Your Child to Wonder. So, and then, I don't know, she was so successful at mobilizing action, I thought, and that's what's kind of needed now is is some action on climate change. The other, I think it also worked with the spring tides, which, you know, you know all about, but the spring tides are the king tides that are affecting places like Miami and other places. And there's a big, and, you know, misunderstanding with that, which you do dive into into your book. When people hear spring tides, they automatically right. think of the season when what it means right. is just a higher than normal tide that occurs. And so that's why some people are calling them king tides now, but they're, right. they're really the same thing really the same thing. But I think king tide, yeah, helped to avoid that confusion that it didn't just happen in the spring. I well, there's the also the, like, that. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> the other thing I was thinking of is that the spring kind of, you know, one of the terms that it gets used a lot is resiliency. And resiliency is kind of like springing back. So I think I hope that sudden spring could capture a little bit of that optimism that we can deal with this if we're prepared. Now, if we're not prepared, certainly it'll be more sudden, you know, and that's where you get the we're going to get into problems. Um, and I mean, if you want to appeal to people with a season, at least for me personally, spring is just, yeah. you don't want to lose that. It is just, I, I know that you're connected to nature too, and I don't know what your favorite season is, but for me, like, oh, it's like this breath of fresh air, this beautiful, oh, wondrous time on earth. So that's a personal yeah, favorite. the trees are coming back in bloom and the wildflowers are out. For me too, it's a, you know, that's a great time of year. And so, and, and I think I was initially going to try, you know, that was another thing that you were, that I was seeing and some of the things I was, I was reading is these, they call these things false springs. So you're sort of getting spring coming earlier and earlier, um, which can throw things out of, you know, out of whack. But yeah, so, uh, the, the, I love the spring and that was, in a, in a way, I was hoping to sort of travel at that time and, and look at, I don't know, what could be changing in our spring. I think there was a book a long time ago that tried to do that, that tried to track spring like all throughout the continent. So, but I didn't do that. 
<laughs> that would have been quite an undertaking. Yeah. But you brought this up, and um, I noticed this theme a lot in your book, resilience and bouncing back. And I noticed it in the conversations that you were having with city managers in some of these cities and towns that are seeing, you know, significant sea level rise or whatever it may be. You, you had this, they had this just kind of, we're tough. We're going to, we're going to bounce back. We are not going to let this beat us. Or my favorite quote was, we are not beeping retreating. Yeah, so <laughs> somebody it's a, that's in, my very effective Hamp- beep. <laughs> right. Somebody in the Hampton Roads area, Virginia, I think, said that to yes. to another colleague that I was interviewing. But another community there in Norfolk, he said something like, you know, we've survived a lot. We've survived, I don't know, Yankee bombardment and something else and something else and we're gonna be around. So they're trying to look at this like it's something they can, you know, they can deal with. And I guess resilience does yeah, does deal with this kind of capacity to absorb the shock and somehow bounce back. They use it especially in, you know, some certain cities are what are called resilient cities. And I think that's a designation that the uh, the Rockefeller Foundation gives them. I think Norfolk is one and New Orleans is one. So I used it a lot in New Orleans, too, to get to some of their kind of resilience efforts, which are many. But And resilience to them is not only some of the infrastructure kinds of changes that you might need, but it's also something kind of cultural, right? It's like a, a certain mindset. And then I think it also refers to kind of an economic adaptation that they hope to, to bring about. Now boarding. It's time for one of our recurring segments, Go Before It's Gone, where we highlight places you should visit before they're changed or disappear completely due to climate change. Today, we're talking about a city in Rick's home state of Virginia. If Captain John Smith were to revisit Jamestown, Virginia today, he would be met with a very different landscape. Since the original settlement in North America by Europeans was first established in 1607, dozens of feet of shoreline have disappeared thanks to rising seas, and millions of artifacts have been destroyed in the process. The Chesapeake Bay and Virginia Tidewater are some of the most vulnerable areas to sea level rise from climate change in the world, and Jamestown is one of the victims. While it may seem hard to believe that a place that has been around for so many centuries could disappear beneath the waves, it actually won't take much to put the entire island underwater. Just a foot and a half of sea level rise would swallow the island. In the 20th century, the water in this area already increased by a foot. And these issues are just with daily water levels. Put a hurricane in the vicinity and there may be damage bad enough to close the island forever. You may still be able to take your kids to see this historic landmark now, but taking your grandchildren could be a different story. Now that you've got some new getaway goals, let's get back to Rick's journey. Rick, what did you hope Sudden Spring would achieve? So I really wanted to go sort of put a face on it in some way. Well, where can we actually see it? You know, where is it where is it happening? And if we could see it and bring it almost into like people's backyards or on their back doorstep, then maybe it wouldn't be so abstract and, you know, not just, well, certainly I think to some people it's like something that, I don't know, happens at the polls or something like that. But that's the thing is it's not just happening at the polls, right? It's, um, it's, it's, it's here. <laughs> it's at the doorstep. Um, so and I think what sometimes, was... well, I was going to say like sometimes focusing on places that are 
that are special to some people. Um, I mean, that, I think that's one of the things. I think you know the numbers are rising in terms of the number of people who I think believe in climate change, but a lot of people still don't feel like it affects them personally. But I think it. it I was hoping to maybe in part show that it will affect places that they love or care about. You know, so places on the Outer Banks or Georgia Coast or you know places like that or or Florida and then even inland too. But but those are places that I think I end up highlighting. And it's not just that they will, but climate change is impacting those places. Yeah, increasingly it is. I mean the and I you know the. The, I started this well before this past hurricane season, but things like Michael and Hurricane Michael and Florence and things like that that I think are supercharged, I know, as you know, and probably can explain better, you know, supercharged by a warmer atmosphere, a warmer a warmer sea. So it's certainly happening. It's not like this far off data point, but it's it's here. And and increasingly, we got to, you know, we have to do something about it. It's kind of built into the system. So, I mean, we still need to, yeah, so we need to figure out how to, how to reduce these effects. Yeah. So uh, you and I talked a little bit about this, the challenge that is talking about climate change. And it feels like people are just like, okay, we hear you. <laughs> or, okay, we don't want to hear you. Please stop telling me this. I don't want to par- participate in this conversation. But something that you bring up in your book, which I find is fascinating, is this fear. This You talked to some folks who talked about the fear that is induced in people when they talk about climate change, whether it's, well, I don't want this to be my fault, so I'm just going to, you know, ignore it, or my livelihood and the place that I love is threatened. And so, you know, what do you think about and what did you learn about the responses to people whenever the place that they love is threatened? I guess, I mean, yeah, in some cases you can almost, I think I could almost understand some of their denial because in some places the news is pretty grim. And so it might almost be like one of those stages in grief where you're at first, you know, first there's something like denial. So I think I encountered something like that on Tangier Island, which, you know, has has been written about. They don't like to think that it is climate change. They like to think that it's it's something else or erosion or something. But but then then again, you, as you say, some people also seem to fear the solution, like maybe, you know, this is going to have other adverse effects. It's going to hurt jobs or the economy or something like that, that, that if we do something about this. But I think the, you know, what I could find out at least is, is the reverse is probably true. Like if we don't sort of address this, it could fiscally be very bad for a lot of these communities. And so that was like when I talked to a lot of the planners and a lot of the people in City Hall, you know, especially, you know, that's what they wanted to do is communicate the need for doing something about this to, you know, kind of keep their community intact. Because there's all kinds of, you know, so there could be, you know, some of them, uh, I remember going to some going to Galveston in Texas, the person who's trying to do this kind of coastal spine down there, his name is Bill Merrill. You know, he really talked about how doing something gets you from, I don't know, something like a hurricane event to a complete disaster because people then, you know, lose uh, medical supplies or insulin or something like that, or they can't get to the hospital. So that doesn't quite get to fear, but it gets to the I don't know, the planning that might be needed to 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 get to the, you know, to, to deal with this. Um, I mean, that was so, that was one of the things I think I was trying to get to is also the way that because it in one of the chapters, 
I went to North Carolina and I talked to them about what they're seeing, and they're seeing a lot of change, especially in some of the trees that are getting inundated. And then I just kind of went to paddle my kayak, and this was in the Alligator River, and I had an encounter with an alligator. And I thought about how that really activated my fear center, you know, like, because that was a, I mean, maybe you're used to seeing alligators, but I wasn't. (laughs) It was uh, a new experience. It was a new experience, and I was, you know, holy, and I was in my little tippy kayak. And then I thought, well, that's that's kind of what's interesting is the way, that, you know, this activates our fear center. But in some ways, climate change does not. And because it does not, it seems like there's a lag in our, you know, in our response and our efforts to kind of confront it. And it's interesting. You you were talking about how often, I mean, you went to these places, you spoke mm-hmm. with a number of people, both officials and just folks in the street. And isn't it just incredible how productive and civil a conversation you can have face to face? Yes, that was one of the really encouraging things. No matter where I went, I mean, it would be, it was the day after the hurricane in Charleston. And and it's almost like the hurricane kind of brought people together. And I could ask them, you know, pardon me, but, you know, can I ask you what you think? And some of them were going to church. And so we're after church and they would, you know, they would talk and they would say something like, we, we gotta, we gotta start to face reality. Other places and bars, you know, we could usually have a conversation and I, and I, you know, and it would be civil. And that's what I liked. (laughs) Yeah, you take that computer away and suddenly people can be nice to each other and listen to one another. It's incredible. What what did you find was the most surprising thing about your research when you were going to these various towns? Most surprising thing? I mean... Well, I just got a better understanding of how unique some of the challenges are in different places. And so, for you know, New Orleans is low lying and they've got to do these levee systems and pumps, et cetera. You know, Florida sits on that porous limestone. So, you know, they've got unique challenges. Um, one person told me that Florida gets water from four sides. You know, they get it from both sides of the coast. They get it from below because it can kind of come up through the limestone and then they get it from the rain. And Lake um, Okeechobee there in the middle. That thing isn't easy lake, to deal with either. <laughs> no. I mean, one of the more poignant, you know, one of the things that's difficult to think to talk about is this idea of relocation. And I don't know that we've really gotten to that yet, but some places are going to have to maybe relocate. I mean, I guess that is happening in some. They're starting to plan for this and they're working with federal agencies. You know, one of those places I went to was down in Louisiana, the Isle de Jean Charles. And I took some college students with me, my son and some friends, and they happened to be kind of on spring break. And we were just doing a little, you know, we were talking to some people before they went to kind of canoe in some of the bayous. And we just talked to some of the residents there. And and they're talked about as among the first kind of climate change refugees, like the Department of Housing and Urban Development would like them to move off the island somewhere else. But when you talk to them, they don't want to move. They'd rather stay where they are. And if it's hard to do for that island that's, you know, 25 families or so, then you know, it doesn't get easier for some of these bigger cities that are on the coast. Well, I think there's a few things, you know, that I found in my research and talking with people is one of the challenges is, first of all, put yourself in their shoes. Would you want to leave your home? If someone came up and said, oh, by the way, you can't sell it either. All that equity you have, 
Right. You can't sell it. You have to wait for the government or local or federal to come in and make you an offer on it. And how do you put yeah. a dollar amount on that? It's very difficult. There was a guy that I talked to with the Nature Conservancy in, his name was Chris Berg, and I talked to him in Big Pine Key. And he showed me this like moonscape where the salt water just keeps coming in and it keeps taking out some of the plants and vegetation. And he only lived a couple blocks over, but, you know, so he was well aware of the problem, but he said, I'm building an addition to my home. <laughs> so he, you know, he's, it's hard. It's, you know, you want to stay where you are. It, it just reminded me so much of what you hear with hurricanes is, oh, hurricanes never hit here. We have been yeah. through so many hurricanes. It's never, you guys always say it's going to be a big, well, you know, for someone, it is going to be the worst day of their life. And it might be your time this time. And I think there's this until there's a, something major that forces you to change. Change is hard. Right. I mean, think about making changes in your own life, small changes like yeah. walking up the stairs instead of taking the elevator and imagine changing your whole way of living based on something you can't see or you don't want to see. Gosh, what a big challenge. Huge challenge. Well, why don't you give us some hope? <laughs> this is kind of a, you know, this is like a sad, hard conversation. Uh, you know, our coastlines in the South are being impacted and changed right now. Sudden Spring, your book, is outlining that. And it's not that it's a book without optimism, because it has it, but it also dives into some of the psychology and, you know, the science and, and why maybe we have this disconnect from seeing where it is actually happening right now and imagining instead that it's our grandchildren's problem. What is the hope that you saw? Did you... Did you see anything that was just so encouraging? You know, there's technologies that are uh, advancing rapidly, solar, wind, those things, and, and others, they're going to help. I think Texas leads the uh, nation now in, I think, wind energy. And they're um, sixth in that. solar, says the Texan. Sixth in solar. <laughs> and so, and there's some great ideas down there that are being floated about carbon sequestration on some of these, um, you know, some of these big ranches. So that's encouraging. So it's encouraging to hear about those. The other thing that gives me hope, I think, are the young people. I traveled with them, with some young people. I mean, I think when you're writing a book, you don't want it to be just your voice. You want other voices in here. So there are lots of other voices. And I think young people really get this and are aware of it. And unfortunately, I, you know, I feel like we're leaving them with a big challenge, but but I think they definitely get it. Well, I mean, the one last thing is it does seem like at one time, you know, so studying Rachel Carson and, and, and some of the environmental issues, you know, so Rachel Carson did help create, well, what is now the EPA. And then eventually in the early 70s, we came to, you know, we eventually came to an Earth Day and we eventually came to the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. So it's like we're capable of doing the right thing. Um, and we did once before. We've got to come together. Yeah. I like to talk about the Montreal Protocol. What a success yeah. that was in 1987. And that was a global effort and change. And we have significantly reduced CFCs in our atmosphere. Yeah. That's my favorite. Yeah, I was, my I favorite go-to. <laughs> right around then. I was graduating college then. And that was also, you know, when James Hansen was, was sounding the alarm. And when that's the beginning of, of a senator from Tennessee who was starting to also talk about it on the, on the Hill. I would like to charge you with one more question, and that is, what can we do? From your experience in this, is there, if someone lives in one of these places or enjoys visiting, you know, these coastal spots in the South, what can we do? Yeah, that's the big question. Uh, I mean, I remember having a conversation after I'd, you know, talked to an expert, I think, in 
on the Keys. I went, we went down to Key West and, you know, had a drink and somebody in the bar said, come on, man. You know, and we had, we were having that conversation and he said something to me like, what really can we do? Come on. <laughs> and, you know, I thought I was thinking about that for a while on the, on the drive home. I mean, there's, I think there, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not, you know, how effective your sort of personal sacrifices or something can be. But I think it's, it, it can do something. I think lots we can do on a personal level in terms of our driving habits or, you know, maybe public transportation or things like that. I think one of the things we should do is educate ourselves. I mean, that's one reason I think I wrote this book. Um, but maybe also some of our civic leaders, um, if they're not aware, or if they could take steps. I mean, some of them told me they just don't get a lot of calls about this. They get calls about the trash or the sidewalks or the potholes, but they don't get as many calls about uh, flooding in the streets and things like that. So, you know, we should talk about it some more because it's not, an, it's not, it's going to get worse if we don't do something. So educating ourselves, I think, is one thing. And that's what comes to mind at the moment. I mean, I think if I wanted this book to have any particular effect, it would be that we begin to change that, you know, conversation to from response more to preparedness. Rick, you are just a wealth of knowledge. And I can't thank you enough for, you know, writing a book for so many people will be so personal because the places that we love and the the places we connect to, especially in nature, you know, a lot of people really connect with the water. This is a powerful piece. This is a powerful message. Well, thanks. How do you see climate changes happening or people adapting in the South? At me on Twitter, at WeatherKate, or tweet me your questions or a topic that you would like to see covered or hate mail, you know, whatever. Warming Signs is a Weather Channel podcast. If you're hungry for more news on the environment and climate change, check out the Weather Channel app where we produce a ton of content daily. A huge thanks goes out to the producers, Mia Bichak, Dan Wright, and Jim Robinson with executive producer Patty Cox for making this podcast come together every week. And don't forget to download and subscribe. I'm Kate Parker.